0: So chapter 4, Paul is writing to Christians, and he is describing what their lives should look like now that they have been rescued from sin and death by the grace of God and the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's writing to Christians, saved by grace through faith. This is what your life should look like, and it will look like that when the Holy Spirit of God is working in our hearts as he has promised to do. So it reads like this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That's the negative. The positive, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And with those two parallel thoughts or balanced thoughts, we will close chapter four. I don't play video games, Uh, but my boys did especially. Actually, my grandkids even play some of the Nintendo kind of whatever, whatever the Mario Kart and some of that stuff. But the boys, when they were in high school, they played some uh, first-person shooter games. Uh, I think the only... I'm pretty much go all the way back to just pinball machines. Like, that's kind of where I dropped off. Once I got rid of pinball machines, I was pretty much done. Except... Right when I first got married, like 40 years ago, my younger brother had, I think it, it could have been a Sega system. It might have been Atari. I don't know. But I played a few games on that uh, and decided, nah, pinball's better. So, but I do know from when the boys played their games that depending on the, this military thing going, you had to choose your weapon. And so they would pause and change their weapon out from whatever this one weapon was to this new weapon. And it kind of reminds me of what's happening here. It seems like Paul's just changed a weapon. He's gone from sharpshooter phase to shotgun phase. Because prior to this, it was like dealing with very specific things. He was targeting things. Falsehood. Telling the truth. Not stealing. Working hard. The words out of your mouth, and then all of a sudden he's like, all right, let me just tell you this. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, put a- oh, and don't forget malice either. It's just like a it's a it fits everybody. It's one size fits all, and it's all grouped together, and it just seems different from the way he's been approaching it up until this point. He lists six specific sins in one little verse. And we're going to look at those one at a time. We'll start with bitterness. What exactly is bitterness? I looked it up in my big unabridged dictionary that I keep in my office. And I should have specifically remembered how many definitions there were. I think it had to be been at least 10 or 12. And I thought, I really can't fit 10 or 12 on my screen. But I know they're typically listed in the order of how often they are used that way. So I've got the first five definitions of bitterness. It says bitterness is having a harsh, disagreeable taste. You eat something, it's bitter, it's a very physical uh, reaction. This is bitter, not sweet. A second definition, hard to admit or accept. It's the bitter truth. You may not like it, but it's the bitter truth. Number three, hard to bear. Grievous, distressful, a bitter reality or the bitter truth again. Number four, causing pain, piercing, stinging. Number five, characterized by intense antagonism or hostility, your bitter enemy, the Cubs' bitter enemy. We all know who it is, so we don't have to say, but we all know. And the cubs aren't in last, by the way, right now. They're playing leapfrog, but that's beside the point. So bitterness is a word that's used more than 80 times in the Bible, mostly in the Old Testament. There's lots of examples of bitterness in the Old Testament, what it looks like and who was bitter. It's often used in a metaphorical sense. Although there were bitter waters, the water was bitter. And so... Uh, the Lord had Moses work a miracle so that the water that was bitter and people didn't want to taste it, it became sweet and they were able to drink it and they, and they found it refreshing and enjoyable. But oftentimes the word bitter has to do with relationships and circumstances. And there's lots of examples of that, of that in the Old Testament. There's only kind of a handful of examples of the word bitter in the New Testament. In the Gospels, I think there's only one example, but it's recorded in two of the Gospels, both in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. And you're very familiar with the story because it's after Jesus has been resurrected. And, and the disciples have scattered, but two of those disciples wind up making their way back to the courtyard. We know one is Peter, the other isn't named. Church tradition says it's John. I think they're wrong. I think it's Judas Iscariot. I think it's Judas Iscariot and Peter go back to the courtyard. And in that courtyard, Peter is quizzed about being a disciple of Jesus over the course of a couple hours. And Peter denies it every time. And the third time after Peter denies it in Luke's gospel, it's especially, especially, I don't know, bitter, especially damning, Because in that moment that he he denies that he knows Jesus for the third time, or he's a disciple, and he he calls God as his witness, Jesus turns and looks at him, catches his eye. And it says in both Matthew and Luke, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. What does it mean that Peter wept bitterly? Why that word bitterly? I've got five definitions on the board. Well, I can hone in on number two right after you get past the literal taste of the matter. Hard to admit or accept. I think part of those tears were bitter because it was hard to admit or accept the truth. Jesus had said, Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny three times that you even knew me. And Peter said, Lord, I don't care if All the other disciples don't back you up. I am here for you till the end. And in that moment, he wept bitter tears because he found out the truth of his own heart. He found out the truth of his own commitment and fortitude. And he wept bitter tears. He wept bitter tears over his own failure. You know what? That's not all bad. That's not all bad. Now, Paul says to get rid of bitterness. Peter didn't stay bitter. Peter was restored. Peter became the man we read in in Acts through however many of the chapters where he becomes an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and is greatly used to build Christ's church. He didn't stay bitter, but for a time he was bitter and rightly so. If I'm going to be bitter about something, probably the... The best chance I have of it being productive is to be bitter over my own sin and bitter over my own lack of commitment to what Christ has done for me and called me to. If I'm only bitter over things that are happening to me, I think I'm bitter about the wrong things. I should be bitter about the state of my own heart apart from the grace of God. A second time it's used is in Acts, and Peter uses it, speaking of Simon the sorcerer. Simon the sorcerer, in Acts chapter 8, is envious of the fact that the apostles have, uh, are getting more, garnering more attention than he is. Uh, They are able to impart the Holy Spirit upon the believers there, and he offers Money to buy that talent, to buy that gift. I will give you money so that I can lay hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit just like you. And Peter, among other things, say, says, I see you are poisoned by bitterness. Simon the sorcerer, you are, uh, your, your life is characterized by intense antagonism and hostility to the grace of God. You're bitter in that you're envy of what we can do and you don't think you can do it. And you can't. You're not an apostle. You weren't gifted that way. That's not what Christ has called you to. And he urges him to repent because the state of his soul isn't good. But bitterness is used of Simon the sorcerer. And then the author of Hebrews says, uh, refers to the root of bitterness. Beware of. Of the root of bitterness. Because the root of bitterness can poison your soul. What starts off small, what starts off as taking root grows until it poisons your soul. And you want you, you could somebody could look like Simon the Sorcerer, where it's poisoned his entire being, what he thinks, how he lives, what he wants. So Hebrew says, beware of the root of bitterness. So, just some very practical, easy observations about bitterness. Number one, bitterness is a poison that harms yourself, oneself. It chokes out the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, meekness, self-control, those types of things. That's what God's Spirit is working into believers. But God's Spirit is not... Accomplishing much if my soul is bitter, if I've allowed a root of bitterness. It's hard to have gentleness if I'm bitter at people around me. It's hard to have uh, patience and peace and joy if I'm bitter Bitterness affects, you know, I don't know who said it first, and I, maybe I'm butchering it, but the idea that bitterness is, is drinking poison and hoping the person that you're bitter at dies. That's, that's what bitterness is. It poisons your soul when you allow bitterness to take root. Bitterness, it makes people physically ill. In, in American culture, a lot of people have physical problems... And they can be real physical problems, but they're oftentimes aroused, or the root of that physical problem is a root of bitterness. Because bitterness affects you physically. It hurts you physically. Secondly, bitterness harms one's relationships with others. Most people don't like being around a person who's bitter. They just don't. Somebody who's very bitter is not somebody you generally want to spend time with. Because they're so focused on their problems and their circumstances or the people they don't like. I've been around bitter people. I've probably been a bitter person. I've also been around people that are very refreshing. And sometimes they're refreshing in ways that are surprising because their circumstances look rather bitter to me or meager. I think I talked about that. um, Maybe it was at Faye's funeral But the idea that sometimes you go somewhere and you think you're going there to offer encouragement. And you wind up being the one encouraged because they are so filled with the fruit of the spirit. They are so filled with the love of Christ. I get more out of that exchange than what I ever possibly imagined. So bitter people push other people away. You just don't want to be around people that are bitter. And then thirdly, the worst of all, is bitterness harms one's relationship with God. And ultimately, this has to be true because if I'm a bitter person, I've become God. Because it's all about my comfort and my peace and my security and what I want out of life. It's not about me worshiping God as his servant and saved by his grace. It's about what I think I deserve. What I want, I become God. And so I can hardly have the kind of relationship with God I'm meant to have. I heard Tim Keller back when I was kind of looking at some stuff after he'd passed away. I was just checking out, you know, different things I was reading or hearing about Tim Keller. And he made the point that he, he said, you know, some people say, you know, that they tried Christianity. You know, they tried they the Bible way and it didn't work. They didn't get the result they wanted. And Tim Keller said, you didn't try biblical Christianity. You were trying to use God to serve your your God. Because Christianity isn't something so that you can get what you really want. Christianity is getting Christ. In spite of everything else you may lose. That's what Christianity is. So bitterness, not a good thing. Paul says, you need to get rid of it. You got to put it off. Paul Tripp a uh, counselor and pastor in Philadelphia area says, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, yet you grumble your way through your day, guess who you're actually grumbling against? If you believe in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, who's ordering the steps of my life. It may not be, you know, I may plan my steps, but the Lord directs my way. I mean, the Applebees like to uh, quote that couple of verses out of Proverbs because it's so frequent. We can plan whatever we want, but the Lord's the one who orders our steps. Well, if I truly believe that, I really, the opportunity for grumbling has been taken right off the map. No opportunity for that because God knows best, not me. Secondly, wrath, anger, and clamor. I've kind of grouped those together because they're similar. The commentators are kind of all over the board whether, you know, is this a progression? Is it not a progression? There's a lot of similarity between those words. There's overlap. Uh, I'm not a person who wants to make sharp distinctions between, oh, no, that was wrath and that was anger. Uh, Back there in the corner, that was clamor. I I don't think it works like that. I, I also think that's true of words like wisdom and knowledge and understanding. I think there's shades of emphasis But I don't think you can categorize it like, oh, that was wisdom and this is knowledge. It's just, the Bible, I don't think the Bible supports that. I just haven't been able to see that. But with wrath, anger, and clamor, there are nuances or shades of difference. It would look something along these lines. Wrath is the word thumos, if you translate it directly into English. It's a word that means heat. And we get our word thermometer from that or thermonuclear from that. So this kind of... Wrath, this is kind of a, it flares up, it spikes, it uh, It comes on suddenly. That's that kind of wrath, uh, which is somewhat different from the second word, which is anger, which is more of a settled fireplace. It's just always burning. It's always there. One comes and goes pretty quickly. Uh, it leaves as quickly as it comes, the wrath, the anger, it's just always there. And note. Nobody else may even know it's there. But I may know it's there. I may know if I've got anger in my heart and it's just always burning and it's always affecting the way I think and it's affecting the way I feel and it's affecting the way I look at circumstances in life because it's always burning. Always burning. It may flare up. It may, it may get out of the fireplace once in a while or it may not. But it's always there. And then the third word, clamor, there's a word that actually means shouting or crying out. It's, an actually, it's actually a very uh, vocal word. Uh, it can be used actually in a good sense, though that's the exception. The good sense would be, Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb and he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. It's that word. He's not clamoring for Lazarus to come forth. There, it's really quite appropriate to use the word he cried out. He shouted, Lazarus, come out. Generally, the word is used in a negative sense. The demons cried out when Jesus was walking the earth. I know who you are. You're the son of the most living, the son of the most high God. They cried out. I guess in another good sense, on Palm Sunday, the Galilean crowds were crying out. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Son of David. They're crying out. And then five days later, a Jewish crowd in Jerusalem is crying out, crucify him, crucify him. They're clamoring for his crucifixion. They're crying out, crucify him. Sometime this fall, Larry may be in Acts chapter 22, And in Acts chapter 22, there'll be a riot in Jerusalem, and those in Jerusalem will be clamoring for Paul's head. They will be crying out, that, and they're they're tearing their clothes, they're throwing dust in the air, and they're calling for Paul's head. They want Paul killed because they believe Paul has profaned uh, the temple and profaned the law of Moses, uh, profaned all that is true to Judaism. They're wrong but that's what they're crying out for that's the third word this crying out this clamoring if i were to make it contemporary i would say it's a really great example of cancel culture i don't i assume everybody's kind of up on what cancel culture is it's like There's a segment of people, and sometimes it's in the church, by the way. It's not just secular. But if I take it in a secular sense, there's a very progressive movement. And if you don't agree with their values and what they teach, you're canceled. They don't want to have a discussion with you. They don't want to have a reasoned, you know, well, what, how are you looking at it? And Well, what about... They're not interested in that. They will cancel you. They just shout over the top of you because you have no right to say anything. That happens in the church, unfortunately. Uh, false prophets ought to be canceled. I get, but sometimes in the church there's this narrative where if you don't subscribe to the narrative, you're just canceled. You have no right to express your your persuasion as to what the Bible actually teaches. There, let's say you believe in the gap theory. It's not like that's heresy. Any anyway. rate, <laughs> that's kind of a joke. Slander. So let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. In our English this is the word, if you translate it very literally into English letters, that's called a transliteration. It's blasphemia. We get our word blaspheme from that. Um, it doesn't just include blasphemy like you think you blaspheme God's name or you blaspheme something sacred. Blas- The word uh, that's translated slander here, which usually is translated blaspheme, it's just unkind words. They're not words that build up. They're not helpful words. They're words that tear down and destroy. That's the word that's used here. It's translated in my English Standard Version as slander. Here's a couple passages. I don't know that I have time for them. Maybe I'll read some. I mean, if you're really fast in a pew Bible, you can look at it yourself. Self, but I'll read just a little bit of it. In Titus chapter 3, Paul says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to blaspheme no one. That's in the context of rulers and authorities. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Here's the reason Why? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. The reason why I ought to not blaspheme or speak unkind words to people in my life, even though some of the ideas they may express are are abhorrent on some level, they are held captive by what is a lie. They're held captive by their own sin, death, and hell. Now, especially the ones that are merely held captive. I think those that are promoting it and knowingly promoting it, they need to be called out. I think, actually, Doug Wilson does a great example of uh, explaining the difference there. Uh, I could post the video if somebody were really interested. But at any rate, the idea of unkind words ought not to be spoken by those who are Christians. So last week, we asked these questions from the two verses prior. I need to ask myself, is what I'm about to say edifying? Is it going to build up? Is it necessary? Does this need to be said? And is it gracious? Is somebody going to receive this as a blessing? And if it's not those things, I need to just pause and say, maybe what I'm about to say is really in the category of slander. It's unkind. It's better left not said. Proverbs says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. Number six, a false witness who breathes out lies and what's the last one? The last thing that the Lord finds as an abomination. He almost stopped at six and he said, no, there's seven. The seventh thing that the Lord considers an abomination is one who sows discord among brothers. That's, That's slander. Unkind words. It's sowing discord. It's tearing down. It's scattering. So much of what the Bible says for Christians, we are to be marked by unity. Unity in Christ. What matters most? There are cardinal doctrines, essential doctrines that cannot be compromised. But there are many other areas where we can allow some grace. Because I need that same grace. From you. As you do from me. So one who sows discord among brothers. Is something that the Lord considers an abomination to him. Finally, you've got malice. Malice is... Uh, or is characterized by sinful motives that nurse revenge and harm. Malice is a desire for another's misfortune or injury. uh, Abraham Lincoln famously said, and malice toward none after the Civil War, which was an amazing thing. And I'm sure just because he said it, it didn't mean that there was not any malice, because there were two sides that were very polar opposite, and there were people that were killed, wounded, and maimed on both sides, I'm sure they wrestled with malice. But Abraham Lincoln, so far as he was president in wanting to bring the country together, said, you know what, we need to set malice aside. This uh, desire for revenge and harm. A desire for misfortune and injury in the lives of those that have, we fought against for however many years the Civil War was. Proverbs says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't say, yes, it's ex- he deserved that. That's exactly what I felt he had coming to him. Proverbs says, when your enemy falls, don't rejoice. Don't rejoice. That's not what ought to characterize the heart of the church, the heart of Christians. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, there's a terrific story, which is another story I don't have time for, but if you want to read a good story, read it in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1. It's the story where king, well, David, he's not king yet, David receives word from an Amalekite that King Saul is now dead, and he brings David his, his crown, and I don't know if it was an armband or something, I forget exactly, but it was a crown, and And what winds up happening is David slays the Amalekite. The Amalekite assumed David had malice toward King Saul. He didn't understand that David treated King Saul as the Lord's anointed. And though he had been given two opportunities to slay King Saul himself, he believed he should not touch the Lord's anointed. And if God wanted him to be king, he would be king in God's timing, not David's timing. And so David had no malice toward Saul. I think he wanted Saul to succeed. I think he thought well of Saul. I think he prayed for Saul. And when Saul was slain, then David extolled uh, King Saul in song about, about how awful it was that King Saul was now dead. He had no malice in his heart toward the person that was trying to kill him so that's a really good example of no malice. So in this, do this instead, be kind to one another. I recognize it's not always being kind or not always easy to be kind. It's just not always easy because people will say unkind things about you. I will, I have slandered. Uh, I've said unkind things. I have blasphemed. You know, I have, I have had anger. I have clamored. I've, been bitter. I've been all those things. And Paul says, you need to be kind because those things are going to happen. I want you to respond with kindness to one another. And the basis for that, the same word kindness is used by Jesus. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very similar sermon called the Sermon on the Plain, which is in Luke chapter six. And it reads like this, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to everybody who, who likes Him. To everybody who serves Him, He is kind. To everybody who puts their faith, hope, and trust in Him, He is kind. No, he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. He's not saying be kind only to the people who are kind to you. He's saying, follow the example of the Father. He's kind even to the ungrateful and the evil. Somebody who doesn't say thank you and doesn't appreciate what you do. Somebody who will not reciprocate. Somebody who, in spite of what you have done, will still say unkind things about you behind your back. But Jesus says our example isn't what our neighbor does or what culture does. Our example is what the Father does. So be kind. Secondly, he talks about being tender-hearted. That's kind of a complicated word. It's based on two parts, good and inward parts. It has everything to do with your intestines. Uh, If I were to try to pronounce that word, there's a name for words that sound like the experience. And the only one I can think of now is probably not a very pleasant word. But there are some words that the, the way the word sounds it sounds like the experience and this word it sounds like your intestines but your inside that's why the bible so often talks about uh they were moved with compassion it's talking about they're like if you're like look i gotta get up i gotta excuse myself i need to hit the restroom like you know i'm being moved right now i need to go This is not a situation that can wait. That's what's used here. It's like this strong impulse, this strong emotion, this strong on the insides. This is not a waiting situation. This is we've got to do something situation. We're going to be going to the beach. It's usually uh, Nora and Livy go with grandpa and grandma. They ride in our vehicle. I had to cut Livy off last year. Because Livy was drinking and she was eating and we were stopping and stopping. And I'm like, all right, Livy, Grandpa is cutting you off. We are done with the eating and the drinking. We got to get somewhere. We got to get to the beach. All right. Uh, it just had to happen. So it's this word. It's you're so moved. You are moved with tender heartedness. Rather than rejoicing in your enemy stumbling, you grieve that. Because by the grace of God, that would have been you. Except for the grace of God, it would have been you. And then lastly, he talks about forgiving one another. Uh, In 2019, I did kind of a topical thing. 2019 was probably on Sunday evenings. I don't think I did it Sunday morning. So we spent three or four weeks on this whole concept of forgiveness. uh, What that looks like and what it means. And it would probably be worth revisiting, but I'm not planning on doing that right now. But one of my big takeaways in doing, reading as much as I could at the time on forgiveness, I think I'll boil it down to the two main takeaways were this. Forgiveness kind of comes in two stages. There are two aspects to forgiveness. The first aspect is positional forgiveness. It is an unconditional commitment you make to maintain a posture of forgiveness with the intention of pursuing complete reconciliation. So it is a posture, it is the position you have that so far as is within you, you, are, you want reconciliation. I love the illustration I read from some secular person, um, like an advice columnist. She likened it to having a hotel room where you've got shared rooms, and there's a door between, and it means you keep your side of the door unlocked. Now, the other person has to unlock their side of the door. There's no back and forth. There's no, there's no communication. There's no give and take. But this positional forgiveness is, all right, I've got, I'm in a relationship. We're estranged, but I want you to know my side of the door is unlocked. I will do what it takes. I will meet with who we need to meet with. I will have the discussions so that reconciliation can take place. That's positional reconciliation. But full forgiveness doesn't happen until there's transactional forgiveness. That is conditioned upon the repentance of the offender and takes place between you and the person. That's where the transaction actually takes place. I think God is the best example of these two stages right now, beginning at Pentecost, Peter's preaching. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God's posture is you call. I will forgive your sins. A posture of forgiveness. But if you don't call, if you don't repent, there is no transaction. There are no sinners in hell who have been forgiven. Those sinners in hell went with every one of their last sins they never called. But God's posture is, if you call, I will forgive. Uh, And the example or the model is, as God in Christ forgave you. We are to to extend kindness as God is kind. we We are to extend forgiveness as God in Christ forgave us. While we were yet enemies... Christ died for us. And while I am not his enemy, I've been adopted into the, into the family of God. I still stumble plenty along the way. And God forgives me because the grace of Christ is greater than my sin. As I have been forgiven, as I keep experiencing these waves of forgiveness, so I am to extend that to the people in my life. What are your comments and questions? Yes. Yes, I cannot make somebody enter into the transaction, but my side of the door is to be unlocked. So, And then if, if they express a willingness to go, work through that door, then let's meet. And probably in a lot of cases, there, maybe not always, but in some cases there will be a mutual confession. A mutual, you know, here's, where I, here's things I regret, I repent, I ask forgiveness for. The other person as well, but sometimes it could be very one-sided and one person needs to do the repenting, but the transaction has to take place. The posture has always got to be there. The transaction requires two parties. It's, uh, to me, that is such a crucial distinction and honestly, I was surprised how many other sources I read that got it wrong, I think. Some people act as if forgiveness can be accomplished without the other person ever entering into the experience. I don't think that's true. I think my posture, so far as I'm concerned, I'm always open and available. But the actual the actual fruit of forgiveness and the tra- and the transaction requires two parties. Somebody else. <laughs> so so in his mind it's like, "Oh, we'll just you know, everything's just okay. No, you gotta you gotta go through that, you know. And if it takes a counselor, if it takes a mediator, then so be it. But or or maybe it won't, maybe hearts will be so tender, you can have those discussions and you can accomplish reconciliation. It it may not require that, but you can't reconciliation is not pretending like everything's okay. Reconciliation is working to make everything okay. God didn't pretend like we didn't sin. He took away our sin by his death of the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross. He made it happen. So there's work to be done to get the good result. You can't just pretend like the, the thing didn't happen. That's a terrific question. I'm trying to convince my... Oh, wow, this is really good. Uh, Makes me think maybe we do need to do another thing on forgiveness. It's a practical matter. So love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, uh, what that means is, the way I, I took it and understood it, it means like when people offend you and say the unkind things, or we'll use the word slander, which sounds really harsh, but they just say things that are hurtful on some level. It doesn't mean every time that happens, I need to go and talk to somebody like I want you to know like every like every I talk a lot on Sunday morning. Right. So like you guys, I could stand like pastors do at the back and you could all greet me and say, here's what you said that offended me. And you need to apologize. And you could just go through the list and there'd be a long line. You know, my hope is that love covers a multitude of sins. It's like, okay, like, you know, we'll give him a break. Like, you know, he's only sixty four. Like, how much can you get right at 64? But, so love does cover a multitude of sins. That's forbearance. Like, things happen, and you can forgive. It's not going to create a root of bitterness. You can let it go. You know, you give people a benefit of the doubt. You attribute the highest possible motive. All that, love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, But there are some things you can't just... You can't let it go, and it will create a root of bitterness, and that has to be addressed. So if I've said something so grievous, you know, you can't just pretend like I didn't do it or say it. you got to talk to me. Like, you know, what you said was really hurtful. And that's a good thing. Not, Not that I said that, but it's a good thing that you would talk to me about it. So the way that happens, like in relationships, Cindy and I have talked about this over the years, you know, well, actually, even with my own family. You know, because families are complicated, right? And and families do things, and and it's kind of unkind, and love covers a multitude of sins. But eventually, all those little things that were covered by love now become great annoyances, and they feed a root of bitterness. You know, all those things, you know, married couples, you know, pre-marriage, like we got Sammy here, like, okay. Uh, you know, all those little things that make you... Chloe, <laughs> all those little things that, you know, the other person is so different and so unique and, it may, and it, it's what endears them to you. If you don't nurture love, all those little things that are so special and unique and, and you find so winsome, it's like, in another thing. <laughs> Why is it that you always do that? Well, I thought you liked it when, I, when we were dating. It was such a delight. Yeah, well, it's not anymore. It's driving me crazy. Would you stop biting your nails? Would you stop, you know, throwing stuff in the corner? Whatever the case may be. Yeah. <laughs> That's how that plays out. Anybody have something you really. Okay, and then we'll quit. I was just going to say, there a time in my life, never, ever, ever, let's go back. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the image of a root of bitterness is such a good image because those roots, they get in the smallest little crevices. They will take advantage of the least opportunity to take root until, until it becomes something that is not easily removed. That's a great story. All right, with that, it obviously fits really well with the Lord's Supper. We're going to sing two songs. We're going to start with uh, There is a Redeemer.